Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. It's my great pleasure to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week, David Carroll Cochran. He teaches politics and directs the Archbishop Kusera Center for Catholic Intellectual and Spiritual Life at Loris College in Dubuque, Iowa. His primary areas of teaching and research are religion and politics, multiculturalism and democracy, and the morality of war. And he has just authored a, a wonderful book called Catholic Realism and the Abolition of War, which I highly recommend and which we will be discussing. Uh, David Carroll Cochran, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Well, thanks so much for having me, David, and for uh, for doing the interview and uh, plugging the book. I'm very, very glad to. It's a book that I think should appeal to everyone. I'm I'm not Catholic. I'm guessing many people listening are, are not Catholic, uh, but I think the book is is enriched by its references to Catholic theory for and against war. Um, who, who were you writing the book for? Well, it's a, that's a good point, because I think the arguments can appeal to Catholics or non-Catholics, believers, non-believers. Um, I sort of work within the Catholic tradition when it comes to um, its, its moral reflection on war, but I think it's got the kind of principles that I intentionally try to write it for, for anyone who agrees with sort of general principles about not killing the innocent and uh, peace and justice generally can can buy into and agree or disagree uh, regardless of, of their religious background. Yeah, I think it does make a good case also for the, the influence of, of past Catholic thinkers on uh, widespread theories uh, of justifying war uh, and right. as well as refuting those arguments. Um, right. You start out with the, the idea that uh, I think I'm quoting, war's two greatest lies are its righteousness and its inevitability. Can you explain those? Sure. Uh, you know, as a, as a pacifist and, and talking to people, the the two big responses I often get, uh, aside from, well, what would you do about Hitler, or if someone broke into your bedroom, would you kill them? Uh, normally it's, well, you know what, war has always been there. It's always going to be part of the human condition, so it's foolish to, to think we can do without it. Objecting to war is like objecting to the weather. And the other one is this idea that war can be just because in certain circumstances it is necessary. So I don't like war, but if we were ever invaded or this or that, we'd have to go to war. So I think the two great things that people always go to is this idea that war is inevitable and war is morally necessary sometimes. And I, that's what I label these two great lies. And I, the book tries to, to disabuse those two great lies and show why they are, in fact, lies that war tells. And, and without going into the same length as the book, how do you begin to make those cases? Um, I think it's uh, partly it's uh, pacifism is always accused of utopianism and of um, sort of this magical thinking. And I, I think that war, because it has such a cultural power on our mind, because it, it seems such common sense, it actually is guilty of a kind of utopianism as well. So partly it's just breaking down this mental image that many people have that that just accepts war as part of the way the world has always been and always will be. Um, and so basically the, the two halves of the book, the first half tries to show why war is immoral, why it's a lie that it is morally righteous or can be morally righteous, uh, mainly because it, it kills the innocent. And almost any moral system, including Catholicism, says intentionally killing the innocent is wrong. War intentionally kills the innocent, therefore it's wrong. And the second and perhaps more interesting to me part of the book is this idea that war is not inevitable, that we can get rid of it the way we have other 
forms of institutionalized violence, such as chattel slavery or dueling or trial by ordeal and combat. The strange thing about the inevitability of war and the permanence of war, one of the strange things is that current war, war with current technology and weaponry, uh, almost doesn't resemble war of 300 years ago or or further back in the past. Uh, Some forms of ancient war look closer to football to me than to uh, modern drone warfare, and and yet you make the argument that it's not just modern war because of its technology that 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 is evil and immoral. It's all a war always was immoral. Yeah, I think that in some ways, yeah, war today looks very very different than it than it ever did with with technology and um, drones and missiles and airstrikes and um, these kinds of things. But in another way, war has always been human beings organizing to kill each other. And throughout the history of war, civilians have died in as many, if not more, numbers than combat. You know, we kind of have this idea of maybe 18th century war with the two sides lined up in nice, even rows and firing volleys at each other. But that's kind of always been the exception. War has mainly been about massacres and unrestrained killing on both sides. So I think that while there's an element, war is always changing. You know, uh, when the crossbow was introduced, it was this big revolution. Or when cannons were invented, the the medieval fortresses that had been part of war for a thousand years suddenly went away because cannons could knock those walls down. But there's always been the common element of war, which is human beings killing each other and innocent human beings killing other innocent human beings, which is the fundamental moral problem that I kind of try and identify in warfare. Yeah, there really is a common idea among us peace advocates that war used to kill more combatants and through the 20th century and and with sort of a shift at World War II, it became something that kills more civilians than combatants to the point where in recent wars it it can be 90% or more civilians, uh, as well as 90% or more one side of the war. Uh, You're suggesting that's not really the story? Not necessarily. Like uh, colonial wars, for example, um, mainly targeted civilians. Um, Medieval warfare was a chronic part of European culture, and more civilians died in that. It was the sacking of cities and the um, plunder and uh, looting and things like that. And then, of course, war has always come with uh, things like disease and famine, um, that's caused by war, and that has always killed far more civilians than, than combatants. So I think, yeah, civilians have always paid as much or heavier a price in war. Um, it kind of depends on the conflict. So, yeah, some wars today, 90% are civilians, but there's the 30 years war um, in Germany, for example, was probably vast majority of, of deaths were to civilians. So so to get around this argument for the immorality of war, you would have to imagine a form of war that hasn't really occurred yet in which civilians don't die, except that you make an argument that the death of innocents in war uh, includes innocent civilians and innocent combatants. Can you exactly. explain that one? Yeah, that, and that's, um, I think, what I tried to make is the more difficult, perhaps, or, or more strange-sounding argument that uh, when we hear about the death of innocents in war, we think of civilians, not combatants. But even the just war tradition, those who accept the morality of war, recognize the moral innocence of soldiers. It's why we don't execute them for murder once they've surrendered. It's why once the war is over, we turn them over to the other side. Um, Common, ordinary soldiers are considered moral equals. That's the whole just war tradition depends upon seeing them as morally equal and not culpable for the war itself. Why we say that an enemy soldier, even fighting safer in the Nazi army, cannot do anything wrong. 
And uh, in the Catholic tradition, I use the example of uh, Pope Benedict XVI, who was a 16-year-old boy, uh, was came from an anti-Nazi family, but was nonetheless drafted into Hitler's army at the very tail end of the war. And like many child soldiers, um, reluctant to fight but forced to do so, they're innocent in, in every sense that we usually think of the word. So the, the moral scandal of war is you've got soldiers on both sides who are innocent and not responsible for the larger powers that caused the war, yet they're slaughtering each other um, as pawns for these larger powers that, that start and, and fight the wars. Is, in that sense, then, is a combatant who's, uh, you know, internally reluctant but obeys orders and, and fights and kills uh, exactly as innocent as one who resists and refuses to fight and is uh, executed or court-martialed or put in jail? I think that there, there's different levels of sort of culpability. So I think the the, the, the Nazi uh, youth or the youth in Germany, like uh, Sophie Scholl, for example, or some of her circle, the White Rose, would actively resist the war, refuse to participate in, in Nazism and refuse to fight and, or, and give their lives. They're certainly more heroic. But I think that around the world today, there are children, people drafted, forced into war. Um, and while doing so, it, uh, while sort of giving in to that pressure, it would be more heroic to resist. I think you can't see them as guilty in the same way as people who, who started the war. That there is much, soldiers can be as much the victims of war as, as um, innocent civilians who are killed in the course of the war. And yet defenders of war who think of war as sort of a, a team sport, uh, as sort of a, a legitimate moment in which murder is, is okay, uh, sort of think of both sides uh, as uh, participating on equal terms by mutual agreement and engaging in mutual self-defense, one uh, against the other. Um, you suggest in your book that this is not a, uh, that self-defense uh, is not a good uh, way of thinking about people killing in war. Yeah, especially because the paradigm we usually think of as self-defense relies upon one side having the right to defend themselves and the other not. So if, if you broke into my home trying to kill me, and I resisted, and then you killed me, you couldn't tell the police, well, I acted in self-defense. My, my murder victim was fighting back and trying to kill me. Um, so war is more like a gladiator match, where if I go to a gladiator match in ancient Rome, I could say, well, both sides are fighting in self-defense, so it's just. But precisely because both sides are forced to fight to the death in self-defense means that gladiator matches are inherently unjust. They're the spectacle of innocent people killing each other for the interest of others. Um, so yeah. far from making a gladiator match moral, it makes it immoral, and I think worse than that. And, and if one of the gladiators was overhead in an airplane, it becomes even less of a, of a good argument, I would exactly, think. Exactly, yeah. And mu much of the, the killing in war is not self-defense because it's very unequal sides. War often resembles more a massacre than what we consider a fair fight where both sides are... are um, a risk to the other. Uh, in, in fact, you point out examples of massive killing in wars while the other side is retreating, in fact, which makes it even yeah. harder to suggest you're, you're engaged in self-defense, right? Right. Much like the, uh, the slaughter of retreating Iraqi troops in the first Gulf War, um, often some historians say the majority of casualties in war happen after one, <coughs> one army is broken and is in retreat, and that's when the slaughter begins. 
Uh, hard to imagine a, a moral defense for that. We're speaking with David Carroll Cochran, whose book is Catholic Realism and the Abolition of War. Um, you suggest in the book, David, that uh, uh, the fallback position for defenders of the righteousness of war uh, is that, well, it's okay to kill innocents for a greater good, for a higher goal uh, to which the war is directed. Couldn't that, uh, couldn't that be a reasonable argument? Yeah, that's kind of where the uh, my use of the Catholic tradition comes in, because um, in the Catholic ethical tradition, the utilitarian-type arguments are never justified. That is, on certain things, such as the intentional killing of innocent people, um, it's sort of a full stop. That's, that's a non-negotiable, as some people might say. So the way I use the Catholic tradition is basically that you can't trade trade lives in that kind of way, that there's never any justification for killing the innocent. But I also try and make the point that that often is a faulty reasoning. That is, that's another one of war's lies, is this idea that it can solve problems, and if we just overlook the massive slaughter of innocent people, things will get better, and that war always overpromises and uh, almost never delivers the very things it says it's going to deliver. I might go beyond almost never to never, um, because yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I mean I'm, I'm an atheist and a utilitarian and convinced by your arguments in your book uh, because I have not seen a case uh, where war has accomplished some higher good uh, that right. justified uh, the slaughter in the war. Awesome, yeah, and and I think war always it you know just war always says that we need to protect. Um, order and protect innocent life, um, but war is associated with such lawlessness and such slaughter and such, it, it, it always embodies the very things it says it's going to defend, which is, I think, another clue to why war has this hold on our imagination, and its lies are not so obvious because we can't see them, but once you open your eyes and see that war is the exact opposite of everything it claims to be defending, um, that, it, that it, you see the paradox there. Yeah, there's there's so much I want to go into on this book that we're not going to have time for. I, I, people are going to have to read it, but I, I want to jump ahead to some of the uh, analogies you make to other forms of violence and cruelty that have been done away with. Um, because yeah. uh, it, it's you do an excellent job of touching on some uh, that uh, that many others, including myself, have written about as well: slavery and dueling. Uh, a couple that you bring up. Uh, that have not been discussed as much that I know of in relationship to ending war. Uh, one is lynching, and one is trial by ordeal and combat. Um, yeah. Can you explain those as examples uh, to to the abolition of war? Sure. And kind of, as you said, uh, you and others, um, going all the way back to, to Margaret Mead and even earlier, this idea that these other forms of terrible violence, which we accepted as just the way the world works, we can fact get rid of or, or mitigate so much that, that we look back and say how could people have ever done that and I really I mean I had a lot of fun with the trial bar ordeal and combat chapter because I didn't know much about it and it's this, this sort of crazy thing that strike us today is very Monty Python-esque <laughs> you know um, but for a thousand years that's how we settle judicial disputes which is longer than we've had uh, trial by jury for example which people just take for granted today and it was very similar like slavery um, to war, that the idea was we have to do this kind of ritualized violence to protect the innocent, to um, uphold law and order in society, um, to ensure that society runs smoothly, um, and it was defended in very similar terms. It's, it's a necessary evil, um, it should only be a last resort, um, it's inevitable, this is always the way it's been, 
um, to get rid of it, um, to be basically the equivalent of a pacifist, is dangerous because it will turn society over to bloodthirsty uh, brigands and it, uh, law and order will break down the innocent will suffer. Um, plus you get all these sort of crazy um, practices of, of how, how society did it and we see, you know, grabbing a hot iron or throwing people in water to see if they will think or having them fight to death with these, these crazy rules that today, or maybe in two, three hundred years, people will look back on war and say the similar thing. How could people have ever thought something so crazy was, was reasonable or inevitable? And, and how did it go from being uh, accepted and required and natural and inevitable uh, to being crazy? Yeah, I think that that's an interesting process that all these forms of institutionalized violence went through. It wasn't like one morning everyone woke up from a dream and said, we can't do this anymore. It was a gradual process of social attitudes changing, uh, much like the rise of pacifism and the peace movement, sort of challenging assumptions, uh, but also states reacting and, and um, outlawing it or suppressing it, and perhaps most importantly, alternative institutions emerging. So other ways to solve the disputes that were underlying. And it's important to recognize that many of these were also unjust. So judicial torture in many ways replaced trial by ordeal or combat. You can, just because you get rid of one unjust institution doesn't mean you've got a world of peace, love, and understanding. You can have other unjust institutions as well. Uh, lynching, as, as it phased out in the United States, shockingly late, um, was followed soon after by the rise of a... a much more aggressive prison boom, sort of the prison industrial complex, so that black males in particular, as lynching faded as a, as a threat, um, face now a new unjust kind of con continuity with the prison system. So we can get rid of these things. It doesn't necessarily mean everything is great, but at least we can get rid of certain institutions. So a world without war isn't going to be a perfect world, a world free of conflict and violence. But I, I argue it'll certainly be better for having gotten rid of war, at least. No question. Uh, in terms of getting rid of war, uh, and this is something that you address in the later section of, of the book, How Do We End War?, um, it, it seems there's the problem of, of actually waging wars, and there's the problem of the much more massive preparation for wars and fueling of wars and the international trade in weaponry of war. Um, we saw the, the Pope, speaking of Catholics, uh, tell a joint session of Congress to end the arms trade, and, and you heard applause, uh, after which they uh, went ahead and escalated the arms trade, right? So yeah, exactly. um, how, how, uh, how important is, is the arms trade and the preparation for war, and, and where should we be focusing in, in trying to end this madness? That's, that's a great question. I think that it kind of goes back to Margaret Mead's idea that war is an invention and that war can't just break out. A lot of people think war is natural. It just breaks out. But you can't have a war without a tremendous amount of institutional preparation for war. Um, and part of that is the arms trade, part of that is the military-industrial complex, part of that is the mindset that people have that war is acceptable and, and a, a tool that can be used. I think it has to exist on, on multiple fronts. So all these, whether it's chattel slavery or uh, ordeals in combat, lynching, all of it was a gradual process of work at multiple levels by activists, by changes in government policy, by delegitimizing certain things. So as far as the arms trade goes, I think moral, what, what the Pope was trying to do, which is kind of a, a moral censure 
with dueling, uh, the most important thing that led to the end of dueling was when people, it went from being seen as respectable, being comical and scandalous. So, so far, the arms trade isn't something that is scandalous. Um, you know, your, your kids going to work at, for an arms manufacturer is not something that parents are ashamed of, necessarily. They don't refuse to tell tell what their kids are doing at dinner parties or something. So if, if, if you, it can become the kind of thing that's scandalous or shameful or um, just in ill repute, that's part of the social sanction that often changes these institutions, as well, of course, as government policy trying to er- erode it and shift resources in other sort of more productive, more humane, peace-oriented uh, direction. Is, isn't it a little bit ridiculous uh, once you look at it from an anti-war perspective that uh, murder on a smaller scale is, is, is absolutely condemned and uh, lesser acts of cruelty from torture to rape to assault to fistfights are, are absolutely condemned, uh, but the murder of massive numbers of human beings and, and the traumatization and the creation of, of homelessness and refugee crises is, is somehow uh, just normal, uh, par for the course? Yeah, exactly. And that comes back to those, those lies of war that, um, you know, today we'd say um, someone who works as a, an overseer on a plantation whipping slaves um, is a terrible thing. How could anyone do that? But at the time, it was just another normal job um, that people sort of accepted as, as just part of the way the world worked. So identifying how you can gradually shift to where social roles that today seem legitimate, hopefully, and down the road, will look back and say, how could anyone have ever done that job? How could anyone have, have spent hours researching how to more effectively make a drone that will more effectively kill people? Because drones just don't invent themselves. They're sane people who spend a lot of time perfecting these weapons of, of killing. Um, and, and at some point, if we see that as scandalous the same way we do other other sorts of things, as you said, even more relatively minor things today, I think that will be social progress. It, it, it does somehow become acceptable in U.S. society to look down on war and oppose war when war is imagined as something created by poor African countries, uh, and we must go and liberate them from such backwardness. Uh, And yet, I look at the world of warfare and who primarily arms the poor African countries, and who uh, is trading more arms than any other nation on earth, and who has put more into its own military than almost all the other nations put together. And I wonder whether the focus shouldn't, in fact, be first and foremost on Washington, D.C. Yeah, I, uh, I think there's a passage in the book where I point out that uh, a series of wars that uh, swept Central Africa around the, the Congo um, over the last couple decades, which have killed, you know, World War level of casualties. I think nine countries participated, eight of which were armed and equipped by the United States uh, militarily. So we, we are, and this is what the Pope has pointed out uh, many times and his predecessors as well, we've poured arms into these countries fueling the war um, and making profits off it. And, and you're right, we spend more than the rest of the world combined on, on arms and weapons spending. We're the largest arms dealer in the world. And that is, for some, uh, paradoxically perhaps, one of the few areas of bipartisanship in Washington. They fight over everything except military budgets and approving arms sales around the world. 
And so it, making that a scandalous thing is, should be a, a, a huge thing for, for peace activists. And, and that war in the Congo of recent decades that's killed six million or more people uh, was fueled by putting a warmonger in charge of the nation of Rwanda, which was fueled by uh, years of U.S. support uh, in Uganda and, and for uh, the assassination of a couple of presidents, which led to uh, a mass slaughter uh, that the U.S. chose not to step in because it wanted that particular regime change, uh, and, and yet we never hear not another Congo, and we never hear not another U.S. intervention that leads to a disaster like Rwanda. We hear the U.S. missed an opportunity for a noble war. It should have bombed Rwanda and didn't. That would have helped people. That's, that's what we hear in U.S. culture. Yeah, and again and again, there's this lie, again, this utopianism that war will bring peace, that um, that this invasion will be welcomed with open arms, and we're going to bring democracy here. We're going to, and again and again, as countries collapse into chronic civil war after interventions, this idea that, and this goes back to the Catholic tradition, it's always said that war breeds more war, that conflict breeds more conflict, and that's the, what Pope John Paul II called the great lie of war is that it's going to break the cycle of violence when, in fact, it creates and drives the cycle of violence. And that people call pacifists unrealistic and utopian. But the belief that war is not going to just set up the next war is, is, is as utopian and unrealistic as, as you can get. I, I find another argument in U.S. culture just in very recent years uh, a bit utopian and somewhat misinformed, and this is the phenomenon I, I refer to as Pinkerism, uh, because Steven Pinker has been such a proponent of it, this idea that, that war is going away, uh, and that if we would just relax a little and sit back, war would disappear because it's disappearing. And it seems to me he builds his case on much more solid evidence that other forms of violence are going away. Uh, and by viewing U.S. war as not war, and recategorizing it as civil wars, and comparing uh, the deaths in a particular nation to the much larger uh, human population of the entire planet and and all sorts of fudging of statistics to suggest that war, when we've seen some of the worst wars ever, including the U.S. war in Iraq, that war is disappearing. Uh, I mean, if it were disappearing, I think that would be in part due to the efforts of people to make it disappear, and they ought to redouble their efforts. But, But is it disappearing? I think, um, and this is a, an empirical question that is sort of raging, I think the evidence that the percentage of battle deaths, uh, the number of wars is declining is, is pretty persuasive. Uh, not to say it's not going to bounce back up and not to say it's an uneven decline, but I, I am persuaded by much of the evidence that the frequency of war and the percentage of battle deaths per capita has declined. Um, but it's not an automatic thing. It's the kind of thing that has to be pushed, and as you said, peace activists, governments need to continue to hopefully drive the decline down even further. A lot of it now, as you're right, is civil war and um, conflict within countries and sort of that line between war and massacre and gangsterism. But great power war between great powers has been on the decline, and most countries are less warlike. Unfortunately, the United States is exception to this, so we tend to export war out of our neighborhood, uh, but many parts of the world have become places where wars become almost unimaginable. Um, 
Well, well I, I, there's, there's, no, there, there's no question that certain places, wars don't happen in the United States, Europe, etc. And there's no question that the rich armed countries haven't gone to war with each other since World War II. And, and uh, those aren't bad things. Uh, yeah. the, the problem is the wars on the poor countries uh, and right. the wars between the poor countries. Um, uh, in, in any case, it is uh, a topic we could go on for hours. We don't have the time. It's a wonderful book. Uh, go and pick it up. It is called Catholic Realism and the Abolition of War. We've been speaking with the author David Carroll Cochran. David, thank you very much for coming on Talk Nation Radio. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's, uh, it was great, and uh, keep up the good work. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.